If you're just joining us, we're in the middle of a 13-week series where we're going through the story of the Bible from beginning to end, and it is a long story short. There's lots that we're not able to cover, uh, and you can go online. The, the Bible Project has lots of videos like that that just give great summaries uh, of kind of the story of Scripture uh, as well. If you haven't got one yet, uh, you can pick up uh, a book and follow along with us. Uh, even if you haven't started yet, you can start today. And what this book has is a place for notes for each Sunday, uh, but also a reading plan in between the Sundays so you can fill in the gaps uh, of the biblical story as we go from the front uh, of the Bible, from Genesis all the way to the end of the Bible uh, in Revelation. So we are picking it up, as you can guess, in the book of Joshua this morning. And part of the reason I wanted to watch that video uh, is because there's lots of details in the book of Joshua that I'm not going to get into this morning. Uh, because I want to focus a little bit on uh, a specific theme that starts to get introduced in the book of Joshua, in the book of Judges. And, uh, and that's, the, that's this theme of harem or uh, judgment or uh, the, the conquest, which is what the sermon this morning is titled where God's people actually go into the promised land. And if you're reading through the story, you will feel quite uncomfortable when you get to this section of biblical texts. Uh, as, as God commands them to kill every man, woman, child, living and breathing thing, and you're like, what is going on right here? Um, and so it's, it's, it's not a very preachable text, I'll tell you that. Uh, but it is, it is a these are texts that have caused lots of questions uh, throughout the age of the church, uh, particularly because people wrestling with what does this mean in light of Jesus. And that's what we want to talk about a little bit this morning. And uh, Richard Dawkins, famous atheist, uh, said this, and these are bigger words than I normally read. So, uh, but it says, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction, jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infant, infanticidal, genocidal, philicidal, sorry, even the lights are making it hard, uh, pest, pestilent, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously, malevolent bully. A bunch, you can look up those words. Uh, the bullies, I understand bully. The God of the Old Testament is a bully. That's what he's saying. And this has caused him and many to reject the God of the Bible. And I want to respond a little bit to this comment, uh, to this perspective this morning. Because uh, my simple answer, and, and I'll give you the whole sermon here in the next uh, two seconds, is Richard Dawkins didn't read the story long enough to get to Jesus. And Jesus changes everything. He may have read the Bible, but he hasn't read the Word of God, and the Word of God is Jesus. And that's what we see in John chapter 1. Uh, the Word is with God, the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and made his home among us. And so we, if we want to understand the revelation of who God is, we have to follow the story all the way through to Jesus. And that's why it's difficult, as we'll see, uh, just to dive into one section of the story. You can make the Bible say anything you want it to say. If you have an agenda, I guarantee you, you can probably find a text, a verse, a paragraph, a section of the Bible to justify your own personal agenda. 
If you want the Bible to jump, it'll jump for you. If you want it to dance, it'll do a little jig for you. It's like people treat the Bible sometimes like they're training a dog. I I have this thing, and I want to do what I want it to do. And you can find it. You can find a way to make it happen. If you want to find a moral monster like Dawkins has set out to do, you can find one. If you want to find passages to justify angry vengeance, you can find them. If you want to find passages to further your political agenda, you can find them. But is that the point of the Bible? Is that, is that how the Bible was actually given to us to read? The Bible is like a Rorschach test. I don't know if you've ever heard of these tests. Uh, but Herman Rorschach, in 1921, uh, established a way to evaluate people's mental health. He had people stare ambiguously at shaped ink blots and report what they saw. And these tests, he basically suggested that they told him more about the person than they did about what the person was looking at. To one degree or another, everyone projects their desires, fears, motives, and expectations onto others, and we all tend to interpret what we see and hear through a grid of what we want or expect to see and hear. So many of us come to the, the biblical text with these ideas of what God is like, but we don't read the Bible nearly as much as the Bible reads us because the Bible will, is like a mirror. It will actually show you yourself in a mirror. You will find what you want to find in it. And so when it comes to these difficult texts, I, I want to suggest there's really three options and three options that people have historically taken. One is dismissing. Dismiss the Bible. The Bible's an ancient book It doesn't have anything to teach me. It's outdated. It is just as good as Greek mythology. I'm sure there's some good lessons in there, but there's nothing real in it. It's kind of made up. So this is a popular thing in our culture when people try and dismiss the Bible and talk about it as an outdated thing. Equally popular is synthesizing the Bible, making the whole thing try and agree with each other, reading it as a flat text. And and many people, because the Bible is authoritative, the Bible is inspired, correct? And so so what happens when people choose to read the Bible as a flat text, they'll open at any point in the story, and they put their finger down, and this, this word, this paragraph, is just as authoritative as this one. And they think they can basically find isolated truth in any segment of the Bible, it's like a cookbook, and that's why I have the Mennonite girls can cook. Can I get an amen? We got any Mennonite girls here that can cook? Usually with lots of fatty gravies and that kind of thing, but uh, it tastes good. So we, we treat it like a, a cookbook. In a, in a cookbook, in a recipe book, you can, you can open it to any point, and you don't have to know the recipe before it or the recipe after it because the whole recipe is on one page. You, you follow me? Not that I've ever opened a recipe book. I, I haven't. I've, I've never used one. Uh, but from my understanding, uh, there's all these recipes, and you don't have to know the previous recipe to understand the recipe that you're looking at. So many people try and read the Bible this way without context, without the story in mind. And so they try and synthesize the whole thing as equal. But the the Bible has a trajectory. It has a story. 
So the third option is learning how to reinterpret the Bible. And this is much more like a novel. Got any Lord of the Rings fans here? It's much more like a novel. And if you were to pick up one of the Lord of the Ring epics and you were to pick, open up the story, you would be completely lost, right? Because you would have to have an understanding of where the story came from, where the story is going, the character development in the story, uh, what, you know, who's good, who's evil, who's complex, because sometimes the people we think are evil aren't evil, and there's all these developments within the story. This is similar to the Bible. The Bible is a story. It's a revelation. It, it, it's a progressive revelation, and we talked about this in the first week. Or you can liken it to a movie like The Sixth Sense. You got any Bruce Willis fans here? I'm the only one? No. I'm not, I'm not actually a Bruce Willis fan, but I love movies like The Sixth Sense. Any movie that kind of keeps you on the edge of your seat and then has a twist at the end that it causes you to rethink the whole movie... I love those types of movies. And then after you watch The Sixth Sense, you want to go back and watch it again. And here's a spoiler, and if you haven't watched The Sixth Sense, uh, too bad for you. It's like 20 years old. Uh, you, you, you missed, your, movie, you missed your, your moment. But in The Sixth Sense, we have Cole Sear, who is ha- Haley Joel Osmond, is a boy who is unable to see and talk to the, he, who is able to see and talk to the dead. And Bruce Willis, named Malcolm, is a child psychologist who tries to help him. Malcolm tries to help Cole throughout the entirety of the movie. And he's trying to work with him and figure out what's going on. And at the end of the movie, um, you find out that Bruce Willis is a dead guy. And that Cole actually does see dead people. And, and then you start to think about the movie and you're like, I, now that I think about it, Malcolm didn't talk to any other characters at any point in the entire movie. And the only person that addressed him was Cole. And you didn't actually notice it for the entire movie, but then when you notice it, a light goes on, and, like, and it's like this aha moment. So movies like that, I just love. And then you go back and rewatch it, and you start to see things that you never saw before because you understood where the story was going. This is the effect that Jesus has in the biblical narrative. The whole story is moving somewhere. God is going to fully reveal himself in Jesus Christ. And when we come to see Jesus and what God is like, a light goes on, and then we actually go back into Scripture, and we've talked about this, we go back into Scripture, we read it in a new way. Some familiar passages, but let me read them again. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Here's another one. In John chapter 5, you search the scriptures because you think that they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. This is like the sixth sense moment. The scriptures were like pointing to me, yet you, re- you refuse to come to me to receive this life. You were trying to figure out where the whole story was going, but you actually didn't come to the conclusions that the story brought you to, and so you missed the whole point. In Luke, it says, Then Jesus took them, and this is after his resurrection, through the writings of Moses and the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. 
So it's like Jesus has this sixth sense moment, and the disciples' eyes get opened, and then he goes back through the story, and they start to see things that they never saw before and understand things they didn't understand before. And here's one more. Hebrews, the old system under the law of Moses, we talked about the law last week, was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, and yet uh, not the good things themselves. Jürgen Moltmann, theologian, theologian, says, when the crucified Jesus is called the image of the invisible God, that's what it refers to him in Colossians, the meaning is that this is God and God is like this. This was the aha moment that the early church came to when they came to understand Jesus as Lord. When he died on the cross, when he was resurrected, it changed everything. And for 300 years, the early church believed in a non-violent God because of what, how they understood God to be through Jesus. And it wasn't like that. When, when Jesus showed up, people were waiting for a Messiah. They were waiting for a tribal leader. We had Herodians. And the whole idea of the Herodians was they were Jewish people. They were living in Rome. And they, their whole idea was, or they were in, in Jerusalem, their whole idea was that we will come under alignment with Rome so, uh, because to oppose Rome is death. And we care for our lives. So we're just going to align with culture. We're going to align with Rome. You had the zealots who would have gone to Joshua and Judges as their core text and said, you know, the, whole, the only reason that God hasn't delivered us yet and hasn't sent us the Messiah is because we're cowards and we're not willing to stand up to Rome. Then you had Pharisees who wanted to annihilate the Romans as well, but they thought the reason God hadn't sent the Messiah yet was because they weren't holy enough or pure enough. So the whole theme of the Pharisees was trying to become more pure, to observe the Torah and the law even more closely, and then God would see them as good enough to rescue them. And then you had the Essenes who just wanted to forget the whole thing, and they went to the desert and said, you know, this isn't worth it. We're going to hide out in the desert. The Jews were waiting for a Messiah. But most of them missed him because he wasn't the war hero that they were waiting for. And so some of the Jews saw him. Some of the Jews began to imagine a better picture of what God was like. And like I said, for 300 years, the early church understood that God was not a war hero. That Jesus, God with skin on, actually came and sacrificed himself so that we could be saved, so that we could have eternal life, yes, but also as a model in which to live by. The church grew exponentially in those first 300 years. Why? Because people were giving their lives for the gospel. They were refusing to fight other human beings for the sake of the kingdom of God because they understood the kingdom of God to be different. This is where we get the, the term martyr from, which, which comes from the Greek word martyrios, which means witness. Because people understood that those who were dying were giving the greatest witness to who Jesus was. So people found this attractive. 
And the church actually started to grow. Believe it or not, people found this attractive. They're like, there's something different about people who are following Jesus, who are part of this way of living. Until the fourth century. And then what happened? Christians, Christianity grew, and Constantine decided it would be advantageous to make Christianity the official religion of Rome. And as soon as Christianity and Rome married, there became an invested interest in the Joshua and Judges passages, which became key core texts for the Roman and Christianity marriage. Because now they could actually use the Bible for the purposes of Rome to establish the kingdom of Rome with this Christian group that was growing. And this went on for a long time, this type of thinking, for almost 1,200 years until the Radical Reformation in the 16th century, which I don't have time to get into that. So I want to describe something, um, and then we're going to look at how do we apply this to the Joshua text in, in light of Jesus. William Webb, theologian, talks about how we read Scripture, and he, he has this idea called the redemptive movement, that we look at the original culture, which is an ancient Near Eastern culture and a Greco-Roman culture, and then we have the culture of the Bible, which isn't always in line with that culture. And there, we need to pay attention to where there's a redemptive movement from the culture to what is in the biblical text. And then even when we find something that is described in the biblical text, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's the ultimate place where God is going to bring it down the road. Is this making sense? No? Getting a lot of blank stares there. Okay. Original culture, the biblical culture, which is usually a movement away from that ancient Near Eastern culture or the Roman culture, but it, even what we read in the Bible is not the full ultimate ethic where God is going to bring things at the end of time. So what William Webb suggests is we need to look for the redemptive movements in Scripture. Where is the story going? Where is it leading us? And that's why in the first week we talked about the importance of knowing where the story starts and knowing where the story ends because that actually anchors us wherever we are in the story. And so when we look from our culture, where it reflects a better ethic than why, we will see it as regressive. There's some passages that you will look at in Scripture that you will think are ancient and regressive. Yes, because those are written 2,000 years ago or more. But it's not where God is ultimately bringing things. There are some things that we look at in our culture that are not regressive because our culture is as pagan as those ancient cultures and the Bible challenges us. We meet a more radical ethic. You know, when you, when you look at the teachings of Jesus, he gets way more extreme, way more radical than anything that's happening in our culture. The way he talks about wealth, the way he talks about possessions, the way he talks about judgmentalism and hypocrisy and lust and like all these things, he, he actually increases the ethic on it. So let's look at this redemptive movement as an example with the topic of slavery. So in the original culture, you had slavery, which was, which was totally practiced and nobody thought anything of it. And then you have the biblical culture, which, had, which provided better conditions for slaves, 
And we would actually look at, so you, if you wanted to justify slavery, which they did, if you know history, through the Bible, because you can, if you were just to read it like a recipe book and open it up, you could say, there's a text here to justify slavery. Yes, absolutely, but you're not paying attention to where the story is going because the Bible is moving in a redemptive way away from the practice of slavery. And there's an ultimate ethic that we see at the end of the story of Scripture where slavery is eliminated, where people are equal. The Bible talks about the equality of men, and men, women, slaves, Greeks, Jews, where there's harmony, where there's respect for every person. This is where the, this is where the biblical story is going. But yeah, we can look at the Bible and we can see it as regressive of, and we can see it promoting slavery if we don't under, actually understand where the story is going. It doesn't ever say not to have slaves. But we would look at that and say, hey, that's probably not right. What about polygamy? You know, the Bible starts, God's ideal for marriage, and you have, uh, you have one flesh between Adam and Eve, man and woman, yet according to the Genesis narrative, it wasn't long after this rebellion until polygamy becomes the norm. Curiously, God never once speaks out against this practice, even when leaders like Samuel and David have multiple wives. Sol Solomon had 700 wives. Can you imagine having 700 wives? I'm not going to say any more because these are usually the moments I put my foot in my mouth, but uh, 700 wives. That would be something. Um, and it's like 700 just wasn't enough, so he had 300 concubines uh, along with them. But you could, look, you could look for biblical texts to actually encourage and promote polygamy, and you'd find them if you're not paying attention to the storyline. What about having a human king? God said he never wanted a human king, but the Israelites did. And we're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks. Israel wanted a monarchy. God wanted a theocracy. But yet, God actually accommodates what Israel wanted in the biblical story. What about animal sacrifices? It's like a really big deal in the Old Testament. In fact, if you didn't do the right things, you would get stoned to death. Seems pretty serious, but then you get to Isaiah later on in the biblical story. And this is what God says through the prophet Isaiah. What makes you think I want all your sacrifices? Uh, like the first five books of the Bible. Uh, am I missing something here, God? Did I? I'm sick of your burnt offerings of rams and fat of fat and cattle. I get no pleasure from the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. Man, that's confusing. When you come to worship me, who asked you to parade through my courts with all your ceremonies? Stop bringing me your meaningless gift. The incense of your offerings disgusts me. As for your celebrations of the new moon and the Sabbath and your special days for fasting, they are all sinful and false. I want no more of your pious meetings. I hate your new moon celebrations and your annual festivals. They're a burden to me. I can't stand them. When you lift your hands in prayer, I will not look. Though you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with the blood of innocent victims. Wash yourselves and be clean. Get your sins out of my sight. Give up your evil ways. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Help the oppressed. Defend the cause of orphans. Fight the rights of the widows. That's the type of religion that God is looking for. And that's what James talks about. Or in Psalm 51, David writes, You do not desire sacrifice, or I would offer one. You do not want burnt offerings. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart. So what I'm just telling you is that you can't look at 
one section of the biblical text outside of the storyline and understand all the truth that is in there. We actually have to go back into the text with Jesus to understand where the story is going. You know, I have three sons, and they're all very, very different. And if I want to learn to relate to them, I have to learn their world and speak their language. I have one son, I won't say his name, who really, really loves Rubik's Cubes, and he's amazing at them. He, he, he sets up these videos, and he, and he can solve them in less than a minute. You give him a Rubik's Cube, you'll solve it in less than a minute. Because he spent like hours and hours learning the algorithms and patterns of how to work a Rubik's Cube. And I don't understand Rubik's Cube, and I don't understand algorithms and patterns. Uh, and, he, and he tells me all about these things. And it takes about 30 seconds of me trying to follow what he's saying, and then I'm lost. Now, I, we, we've talked about him, this certain son, learning guitar uh, through the years. And, uh, and we have a guitar for him to practice. And, and when he's practiced, he actually picks up really quickly. But he just wasn't sticking with it. And so when I was trying to figure out, you know, how do I communicate things about a guitar that would make sense to him, I used language of algorithms, right? So I don't usually think that way, but a musical scale is actually just an algorithm. A chord is just a pattern. And you can move that pattern up and down the neck, and it's going to give you all different types of sounds. You can learn a certain algorithm as a scale, and you can move it to a different spot, and you're going to play in a different key. And he, 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 he understands it and gets it immediately. Now, why do I tell this? Because any teacher will tell you, any parent will tell you, that if you, want to under, if you want your children to understand something, your students to understand something, you have to speak in their language in a way that they understand. Right? God... reveals himself in a way that his kids understand throughout Scripture. In fact, the entire incarnation of Jesus was this very idea. He, God wanted to reveal himself in a way that we could see him, touch him, get him, understand him. I have another son who would never, ever practice guitar unless I gave him candy. If I talk to him about algorithms, he would just fall asleep. But if I say, hey, I will give you a Mike and Ike's if, uh, if you practice, then he's all about it. He'll do anything for candy. So I won't tell you which kid that is because you could use that to your advantage. But God reveals himself in a way that his kids understand. The Bible is inspired, but God in his wisdom inspired his kids to write it in the context of their own stories. Think of it like a missionary. If you were going to be a missionary and go into a different culture... And you went in not caring about the language, not caring about the culture. You would get in trouble very, very quickly, right? God is like a heavenly missionary who is on a rescue mission for us. And he has put things in such a way throughout the ages for people to understand something about him. God lets his kids tell the story. How did I learn about the algorithms and, and all the different Rubik's Cubes and all those things? Well, I listened. I listened to my kids tell the story. God allows us to tell the story. This is part of his, I think, in God's sovereign plan, how he wanted to reveal himself throughout history. He lets his people tell the story. And sometimes it's helpful not even to think of the Jews or the people of God 
as multiple people. Think of them as one person that is growing from an infant to an adult. That God is teaching them. That God is revealing things to them at an appropriate age, an appropriate time. You know, my kids, I never, ever used to let them go near the oven because they would burn themselves. But I got to the point where I was just tired of making all their food for them. And they were getting old enough, and mom wasn't around, uh, so that's, that's probably the bigger truth. And, and so there's some of my kids that I actually teach them how to use the oven. I teach them how to turn on the elements. I teach them how to boil the water. Why? Because they're old enough. There's going to be one point where I'm going to hand them the t- keys to my car. That's a scary idea. Why? Because there's an appropriate age in which things are able to be understood, that responsibility is able to be given. And if you think of the biblical story, the, God, the, the people of God as a person, that God is actually giving us more responsibility through history, more revelation through history, more understanding through history. And so we see this. in something like polytheism to monotheism. We talked about this. Most of your Old Testament was written in in a polytheistic time. We don't think that. But would you say there's one God? Yeah? How many of you guys would say there's one God? Okay, do you know the majority of your Bible would tell you that there's multiple gods? So how did you come up with the idea there's one God? Well, you actually paid attention to the revelation that came through Scripture that there was one God. But people didn't know that at the time. So when you're, when you're reading text in the Old Testament, uh, you know, even the text we're, we were looking at in the book of Joshua, this is as much about the war of gods as it is about anything. And then we see as polytheism goes to monotheism that this war of gods actually changed to God and his angels to Satan and his demons. The whole idea of Satan and his demons isn't even developed until very late in the biblical story. Let me show you one example in 2 Samuel. It says, once again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel and he caused David to harm them by taking a census. This is 2 Samuel 24, verse 1. And then in 1 Chronicles 21, verse 1, it says, Satan rose up against Israel and caused David to take a census of the people of Israel. It's the exact same story. Now let me tell you, is God the same as Satan? Are they the same person? No. But the difference between 2 Samuel's story and the 1 Chronicles story is 300 years. It represents an understanding of who God is and how God has worked throughout history, and it's moved. There's been a redemptive movement. And so we see along with this that the, the more ancient you go, the more the enemies were flesh and blood, other people. It's physical warfare. It's tribalism. It's the kingdom of Israel versus other kingdoms. As you move forward, you'll see that there develops to be a spiritual enemy. It's spiritual warfare. It's the kingdom of God, which is not like the kingdom of the world. So when we read the book of Joshua, we need to understand at what point in the story we're reading. And so the book of Joshua begins... 
And God is going to fulfill what he promised to Moses. Be strong and courageous, for you are the one who will lead these people to possess all the land I swore to their ancestors I would give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the instructions Moses gave you. So God's encouraging them. Be strong and courageous because you're about to go into battle. As the story develops, we see that three days later, the Israelite officers went through the camp giving these instructions to the people. When you see the Levitical priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of your, Lord your God, move out from your positions and follow them since you have never traveled this way before. They will guide you. Then Joshua told the people, purify yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do great things among you. Follow, God, follow the presence of God. This is what the Ark of the covenant represented the place where heaven and earth met, where the presence of God was on earth as it is in heaven. And so when we think about as Jesus followers, because that's what we are, and if you're not okay with it, it's probably not the church for you. There's lots of good Jewish churches out there, uh, or Jewish, not churches, uh, synagogues. But there, we are Jesus followers, which means we read this with a different mentality. We don't read it in tribalism. We don't read it about in, in, a, in a position of nationality. We believe it. We, we read it and believe that God has called us to a different type of battle with a different type of weapon. And so prayer and worship is your weapon. What God commanded Joshua and the people to do is not let the Ark of the Covenant out of your sight. You are going into a battlefield. What is critically important for Joshua, as it is for us, is that we do not move forward without the presence of God in front of us, in us. Why do we worship every time we gather in this place? Well, because God is worthy of our worship, but we're also doing battle. We're also doing warfare. When we as a corporate people come and proclaim the praises of God, we are establishing in this place space in the physical realm, but also in the spiritual realm, for God to reside on earth as it is in heaven. The presence of God. Are we desperate for the presence of God in our lives? Are we aware that there's a battle waging? And we're going to talk about that in a second. Different than the battle in the Old Testament. When Joshua was near the town of Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him. The sword in his hand, Joshua went up to him and demanded, Are you a friend or foe? Neither one, he replied. I am the commander of the Lord's army. And so we see these redemptive pictures throughout the biblical story. Because you would think, following the storyline, that you know this, this angel of God, the commander of the Lord's army, would have been on the side of the Israelites. But he responds by saying, Neither one. Neither one. The, you know, I, I wore the shirt today on purpose. One of my favorite song lyrics from a band called Gunger, it says, if it's us or them, it's us for them. I love that lyric because I think what Michael Gunger realized in this, when he coined this term in that song is he's saying that God actually doesn't have an us and them. That God is for all people. That every single person was created in the image of God. That he invites all people into a relationship with him. That he wants to transform every single person and help them to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference. That is the invitation, no matter who you are. And so if you've grown up in a mentality or an environment 
where the church has treated you like us and them, I just want to apologize and say that wasn't the Jesus gospel. That he created you to be his. That because of Jesus, we've actually moved from an us and them to this inclusive invitation to life transformation. So people are not your enemy. Who is your enemy? Ephesians says a final word, be strong in the Lord. So here's like echo of the Joshua language, right? Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And who is, he, who is, Jesus, who is Paul here encouraging us to go on the battle against? He says, put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against the spirits in the heavenly places. You are invited into a battle, but the battle is not against flesh and blood. The battle is not against them, other people. The battle is against the, the powers and the evil rulers and the authorities in the unseen world. Satan and his dominion, his demons. And God has created you as his image bearer, his ambassadors to actually go and do battle in this world. Paul talks about battle in another passage using military language. We are human, but we don't wage war as humans do. We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and destroy false arguments. We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. The reason we do battle is to help everyone to know God. We capture their rebellious thoughts and teach them to obey Christ. We fight with reasoning. We fight by destroying obstacles that are standing in the way of people coming to know Jesus. In Jesus, we see a God that would rather die than kill his enemies. God would rather die than kill his enemies. This is the revelation of Jesus. This this is why many Jews did not acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah. He didn't fit into this tribalistic warrior God. In fact, that whole idea, I think, was crucified on the cross with Christ. Now, if you're going to read the Bible as a flat text, this is what's called dispensationalism. People will tell you, well, God was like this back then, and now God is functioning like this now, and uh, in the future, God will, be, will function differently. I would say it, that is ignoring the redemptive movement of Scripture and the revelation of God in Christ. that God is like Christ. Would you agree that Jesus' kingdom will be a kingdom of peace and unity? Do you agree with that? Jesus called the Prince of Peace. But there's more than one way to get peace and unity. In John chapter 8, we're not going to read the story, but there's a story where there's a uh, woman that's caught in adultery and they drag out the woman and they're going to stone the woman. Because this, this is what the Old Testament tells them to do. This is what the law tells them to do. You can go find it in your Bibles. Stone the woman, put her to death. And Jesus actually comes and stands in the gap and he says, let 
he who is without sin throw the first stone. And then it says, slowly, starting from the oldest going to the youngest, they all dropped their stones and walked away. Now, stoning, and I'm, let's talk about, you know, culture, understanding culture. I'm talking about Old Testament stoning, not modern day stoning, okay? Just, to, just, just so we can get on the same page there. So, stoning is a fascinating thing because stoning does a couple of things. One is when you stone somebody, stoning allows everyone to participate. So everyone gets a stone. And we all get to participate in this community in the stoning act together. So they drag this woman out, and now everyone gets to participate in the stoning. And what happens when everybody participates is that stoning allows the individual to exonerate himself or herself. So who killed the person that got stoned? You couldn't tell me, right? Somebody threw the stone that killed them, but when everybody picks up a stone and tries to stone somebody, it actually exonerates your, yourself because, oh, well, I didn't kill them. I just threw a stone. Jesus comes, and he puts an end to what I would call the scapegoating. And what... Why stoning is actually so attractive is that it brings a false sense of peace and unity. Nothing unites like a common enemy. Peace and unity is what Jesus wants to bring, but there's more than one place, more than one way to get to peace and unity. You can achieve peace and unity by identifying a common enemy. We see this in the playground. How many of you guys were scapegoated as a kid on the playground? Put up your hand. Scapegoated as a kid on the playground. You were bullied. How many of you guys bullied a kid on the playground? Okay, I did. I, 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 could list, I could list you the names of kids that I bullied. Not that I bullied, even individually, but me as a class, us as a class bullied. Why? What happens? Well, when you're trying to fit in, when you're trying to know where you stand in a culture, in a group of people, the easiest way to fit in is to Ha- share the same enemy as they share. And then what happens in a group that's look- of individuals that are, look- uh, that are looking to figure out where they stand, if they're accepted, is it gives a false sense of peace and unity within a group. René Girard, philosopher, talks about this. The effect of scapegoating. If peace and unity is, is all we're looking for as people... We can find lots of ways to get it that are completely unchristlike. Completely unchristlike. Jesus comes in and he puts an end to the stoning in John chapter 8. And do you know how John chapter 8 ends? With them trying to stone Jesus. See, what happens is when we step into the gap and we say, we're not going to play this us and them game, we become, we become the next potential scapegoat option so I want you to think for a second have you participated in scapegoating to find a sense of unity identity belonging think of your family is there a person in your family that you that you along with other people have picked up stones and said 
you know, they're a terrible person, that they're, you know, for this reason and that reason, and we can all agree on that, and so the rest of the family actually feels good about themselves because we identified someone that we were against. What about politically? Is there a political group, a political person that you're like, they are the antichrist? Can we all agree on that? Can we all pick up stones on that? And let's huck stones at that person. What about other religious groups? Mormons, Jews, Muslims. Do we, do we select a group of people and we all pick up stones and say, you know, they're the enemy. Would you pick up a stone with me? And then it actually gives us a false sense of unity, a false sense of peace, but it's not the unity and peace that Jesus wanted to give us. What about another church? What about another follower of Jesus? What about someone who's in this church with you that you've actually identified as different other than, and, and you've got a few people that you've kind of said, let's pick up stones against that person. And it, it makes us feel good. It feels like we're united. I'll tell you what. I've had to confess multiple times of identifying scapegoats to justify myself, to give myself a false sense of peace. And I think we do it all the time. Jesus was the scapegoat to end all scapegoats. Jesus took the full force of our anxiety, of our searching for peace, of us searching for unity. And ironically, it's at the cross that we are ultimately unified, that we're ultimately brought together, that God has made peace with man through the cross. And when you, were, when you came in this morning, you were given a rock. Is, do you guys have a rock? This rock represents the stones that you and I pick up all the time when we identify common enemy in an effort to feel like we belong, like we know who we are because we've identified who we're against, to be united, to be at peace with other people. We do this all the time. Jesus said, stop it. Put down, the, put down the rock. And we can look at Joshua and the book of Joshua. We can say, well, that's happened to Joshua. But if you follow the storyline, you say there's no excuse for that for the follower of Jesus because Jesus told everybody to put down the rocks. That he who is without sin throw the first stone. And as the band plays, we're just going to leave it open here for a couple of minutes. And I would like you to consider, is there a person in your life, is there a group that you've identified in your life, a political party, a, uh, a religious group, an individual in your workplace, in your family, in your church, in your small group, it, uh, that you have actually scapegoated because you're pursuing counterfeit peace and unity. I want you to close your eyes right now. How many in the room you know, with your heads bowed, your eyes closed, would say, I've participated in scapegoating. Just put up your hand. What I'm going to invite you to do in this next moment is to, to come forward, and Jesus says, let he who is without sin throw the first stone. And starting with the oldest and the youngest, they came, they dropped their stones, and they walked away because Jesus wasn't going to build that kind of kingdom. Jesus wanted to be known for what he was for, not what he was against. And the kingdom of God is for all people. And so God invites you to drop your stone 
and pursue a different kind of kingdom, one that's built on forgiveness, one that's built on co-suffering love, one that's built on martyrdom if it, if it is even necessary. And what I would encourage you and invite you to do in this next moment is come to the front. We got a bunch of markers here on the front stage and all, all I'd like you to do is you can write down an initial. I know you might not write down somebody's name or whatever. I don't, I don't care what you write on the rock, but write down something on that rock that represents to you the person that the group or whatever it is that you recognize that you scapegoat and choose to drop the rock. You're going to drop it on the floor because you're responding to Jesus say, I'm going to build a different type of kingdom, not that's built on us versus them, but that's built on the kingdom of God that is for all people. And my enemy is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and principalities of the unseen world. And I'm going to do battle in the spiritual realm through prayer and worship. And I'm going to trust that God, just like he promised Joshua, where, wherever you place your foot, God has given you authority. Yes, but that authority is not against somebody else. It's authority in the spiritual realm to claim this space and this place for the kingdom of God, because the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord, is what it says in Revelation. That's where the story is going. And so I invite you to come forward with your rock. You can identify who that rock represents to you by writing a mark on it, and then just drop it on the floor in the front as a way of forgiving that person, letting go of, begrudging that person, choosing not to scapegoat that person for counterfeit unity and peace, because the kingdom of God is far different than the kingdom of this world. Let me pray. Father, I thank you that you became the ultimate scapegoat to end all scapegoating. In the person of Jesus, I thank you that Jesus fully represents who you are. Lord, I thank you that we have this full revelation of what you're like because of what Jesus is like. And we can look back through the scripture and look with awe at how you weave this whole story together, how you taught us what you were like. And Lord, we confess and ask for forgiveness of the ways that we actually choose tribalism. We choose us and them. Because just like everybody else, we want to belong. We want to have identity. We want to be unified. We want to have peace in our lives. And one of the easiest, most counterfeit ways to do that is to identify an enemy. And Lord, you called us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. And so in that spirit, we drop our stones. We will not participate in an us versus them counterfeit gospel. We choose the bloody, messy gospel that happens when we choose co-suffering love, when we choose to suffer instead of fighting our enemies because our enemy is not against flesh and blood. And we thank you, Lord, that you showed us that, that you taught us that. Right now, I pray that you would just reveal to us the people, the groups, the things in our lives uh, that we have actually scapegoated and that we would leave those at the foot of the cross. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I invite you in the next couple of minutes here, the band is just going to vamp in the background, just to come forward, to write down anything you feel like the Lord's stirring in your hearts on that rock and just to, to drop it on the floor. Let he who is without stone throw the first stone. Without sin, throw the first stone. You can walk out with your stone if you want, but Jesus invites you to drop it.